Well, that was a bit much. <laughs> I have entitled this little presentation, God's Dwelling Among Us. Notice, first of all, the very witty double entendre of the title. That is, the phrase is open for two interpretations. There is a double meaning that one may draw from this title. You could interpret the first word as a possessive. In that case, the meaning of dwelling is a noun, referring to the earthly tabernacle constructed by the ancient Israelites into which God's glory came to dwell. And that, in fact, is the thrust of today's session. However, one could also interpret the first word of the title as a contraction. God is. In that case, it is a declarative sentence. God is dwelling among us. That is the thrust, the theme, if you will, of this year's First Things Last lectureship series. Please keep in the back of your mind that what you hear today is essentially a setup for what you will hear tomorrow and Thursday from my very learned and highly esteemed colleagues, Professor Amy Anderson and Professor Phil Mayo. With that, let's commence with prayer. Baruch Adonai Elohenu, Melech Le'olam, Tenlanu Hayom, Oznaim Lishmoa, Min HaTorah Shelcha, Bashem Yeshua, Amen. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King forever. Today, give us ears to hear from your Torah. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, the book of Exodus presents us with a formidable challenge. Indeed, after reading Exodus in its entirety, it's a very legitimate question to ask, what is this book really about? Indeed, with the book of Exodus, it appears that we have a bit of a mystery with which we are faced. However, today, before your very eyes, Rabbi Brookman, North Central's High Priest of Hebrew and Old Testament, will soothe your troubled spirit. Therefore, take heart, put away your phones, and listen as the mysteries of this perplexing book are revealed. And in the end, you'll not only know what the book is about, but you will be overwhelmed by God's dwelling among us. There's a lot going on in the book of Exodus. In each section, as the book unfolds, the reader may think, aha, this is what the story must be about. To be sure, the great acts of God filled the entire book. First, in chapters 1 through 15, one finds the astonishing Exodus event, which was the deliverance of the Israelite slaves out of Egypt. In hyper-dramatic fashion, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt 
as Yahweh parts the waters at Yam Suf. This leads the reader to think that delivery out of bondage is the centerpiece and true main point of the book. Yet the Israelites set out into the wilderness. In chapters 16 and 17, the miraculous provisions of manna from heaven and water from a rock as they made their way through the desolate desert toward the holy mountain. This seems to mark what must surely be the central theme of the book, namely, God's provision for his people. Finally, in chapter 19, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, and one feels like one may now take a deep breath, having arrived at the main thrust of the book. For just then, we come to verse 20. Yahweh descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. There, the commandments, written as they were with the very finger of God, are delivered to Moses upon the mount. And the reader is awestruck. Most assuredly, this must be the crescendo of the book. The commandments and other ordinances and civil laws are strung out over chapters 20 to 23. Then the reader is presented with the majesty of chapter 24. Ah, chapter 24. This chapter is not chronological in its placement, but it gives us God's invitation to Moses to come up on the mountain where he will be given two tablets. 24.1 reads, God said to Moses, come up to Yahweh. At the end of chapter 24, verse 18, we read, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That sets the scene for the revelation to Moses of the Ten Commandments. And the reader thinks, without a doubt, this must be the pinnacle of the book. But regrettably, then comes the next section, the one nobody reads. This final, largely unread portion of the book is comprised of chapters 25 to 40, right to the end of the book. But why fret over this largely unread section? After all, by the time the reader gets through chapter 24, enough of the majesty of Yahweh has been provided to fulfill for a lifetime the needs of anyone aspiring to be a faithful follower of God. Who needs anything more? Or so one might think. We've seen deliverance. We've seen plagues with frogs and blood. We've seen the Israelites walking through the walls of water at Yam Suf. We've seen the provision of food and water in a desolate place. We've seen Moses trudging up the steep mountain, disappearing into a cloud only to be handed two tablets that were to guide the behavior of the people of God. Goodness, we've, we've seen plenty of God's deliverance and provision in chapters 1 to 24, more than enough to make the impression that this is what the book of Exodus is all about. 
certainly anyone who has ever seen Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, gets a little sense of the power and spectacle of God's deliverance and provision in the book of Exodus. Nearly every time I teach Old Testament history and lit, I survey the class to see how many have seen that movie. And it almost always astounds me how many of you have not seen this Hollywood classic. Well, we're not going to take the three and a half hours necessary to watch the entire thing right now, but the trailer from this 1956 Oscar-winning movie is enough to give us a glimpse of God's mighty form presented as the book of Exodus is put to film. Let's roll the trailer. We should take the three and a half hours to watch it. Well, we left off in chapter 24 with Moses going up on the mountain. But then the reader hits a wall, namely chapters 25 to 31. Here we have seven chapters that present the reader with an exhausting, almost excruciating narrative to read. Indeed, for the reader, there's an element of confusion. For example, just listen to how chapter 26 begins for the first couple of verses. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by skilled craftsmen. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Well, what we have here is a very detailed plan revealed by God to Moses for his dwelling place among Israel, the tabernacle. In Hebrew, it's called the Mishkan. In Exodus 25:8, God specifically tells Moses to have the children of Israel build him a sanctuary that he might dwell among them. 
Thus, in chapters 25 to 31, we have an incredibly detailed description of the tabernacle, along with all of its ritual implements that are within it. However, as if that were not enough, chapters 35 to 40 rehash again in the same sort of exhausting detail everything the reader has just agonized through in chapters 25 to 31. What is going on here? And what is the significance of this structure that occupies so many chapters of very challenging reading in the book of Exodus? To be sure, when one reads the details of how Moses was instructed to build the Mishkan, it is rather difficult to fully envision what the thing actually looked like. Those details of construction and appearance, usually lost in the mind of the poor reader, have been portrayed nicely in the following video clip. This helps at least to visualize the form of the structure. And this, cliff, uh, this video clip narrates only verses 15 to 30 of chapter 26. Now imagine 13 chapters of this detailed description. This is what the reader faces. Let's show that video clip. And thou shalt make boards from the tabernacle of chicken wood standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Two tenons shall there be in one board, set in order one against another. Thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there are forty sockets of silver, Two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And for the sides of the tabernacle westward, thou shalt make six boards. And two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in the two sides. And they shall be coupled together beneath. And they shall be coupled together above the head of it, unto one ring. And they shall be eight boards, and their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And thou shalt make bars of chicken wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle, for the two sides westward. And the middle bar in the midst of the board shall reach from end to end, And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for places for the bars. And thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which we show thee in the mount. Well, that was, uh, that was only 15 verses, and you've got 13 chapters of that. I think we better pause for a moment and take a deep breath. For indeed, the narrative is an extremely difficult read. It is detail after detail after detail. 
in chapter after chapter after chapter, and the reader is left literally numb in the skull, wondering what is going on here. Why in the world does God include such minutiae about this structure in his holy word, the Bible? Well, let's flash back for just a moment. On the mountain, Moses received the Ten Commandments in writing. But extremely crucial to understanding the book of Exodus, the larger Pentateuch, the Old Testament, the New Testament, indeed the entire Bible, is what we are told in that section of Exodus that nobody reads. In Exodus 25:8, Moses is instructed to have the Israelites build a sanctuary for God so that he might dwell among them. Catch this. Yahweh says to Moses, have them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Crucial to understanding why the mind-numbing description and all the details of how it was to be constructed is verse 9 of chapter 25. You have to make it exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, the blueprint of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. Get this important point. Yahweh insists that exactly as it is revealed to Moses, the pattern of the tabernacle, so it must be built. And indeed, Moses has the children of Israel build a model of what was revealed to him with very exacting specifications. This idea of according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain is important. This particular command is repeated three more times in 2540, 2630, and 27.8. The tabernacle was to be made exactly in accord with the vision on the mountain. The vision of the Mishkan that Yahweh gave to Moses upon the mountain indeed functioned as a kind of blueprint for how to construct God's dwelling place among his people. Now we get to the answer of why. Why these exacting details? My old friend, St. Augustine, once said, the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The notion that God's dwelling is with humanity is intertwined between the two Testaments. In the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 to 9, The writer takes great care to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest of a better new covenant. The writer, referring to the Mishkan, says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. In 8.5, again speaking of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the ritual implements inside the tabernacle, the writer states, and catch this, they serve as a shadowy copy of heavenly things. 
Did you get that? There is a heavenly dwelling place. And the earthly tabernacle was meant by God to be a shadowy reflection or type of the heavenly reality for us. And now consider Hebrews 9.24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands. That was only a representation, a copy, a type of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Well, there's a whole lot in the New Testament that relates to the dwelling of God. But my mission today, as I've said, is merely to set up my colleagues for what they will have to say about that tomorrow and Thursday. Now we have one more very crucial element to consider. Nestled right between the two sections that focus on the construction of the tabernacle, is the remarkable account of the people's audacious sin and rebellion, chapters 32 and 34. This is the episode of them worshiping the golden calf. The, the narrative location of the people's sin and rebellion evokes a rather grotesque image for the reader. It falls, as it does, right between the two carefully crafted instructions for the construction of this dwelling for Israel's holy God. The holiness of Yahweh mandated that the tabernacle had to be just so because it was patterned, as we have seen in Hebrews 8 and 9, after the heavenly dwelling place. The depth of the people's outrageous sin, however, radiates out from the central place within the narrative of this holy dwelling place of God. The stark juxtaposition of his holiness and their sinful rebellion raises a big problem in the big story. Namely, how in the world does a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people. The narrative in chapters 33 and 34 give us the amazing answer. The people have sinned a great sin, and Yahweh is really miffed. In fact, Yahweh is ready to wipe out this wicked people and start all over with Moses as an Abraham figure. In chapter 32, 10, the Lord says to Moses, leave me alone. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In 32.20, sorry, 32.30, Moses addressed the people of Israel. You have sinned a great sin. And now I'm going to go up to Yahweh. Who knows? 
perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Once he was upon the mountain, Moses offered himself in judgment as an atonement so that God would forgive his people. Lord, please forgive them. But if you don't, blot me out of your book. And Yahweh relents. But there are still horrible consequences to sin. The consequences were shattering. God would not be dwelling among his people. In 33.3, the Lord declares that he will not be present among the Israelites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, because you're a stiff-necked people. In 32, 12 to 16, Moses intercedes before Yahweh. He recognizes that it will be a total disaster if the Lord will not be dwelling among his people as they move out from Sinai to the promised land. In 33:15, Moses says to God, If there is not your presence going, Don't take us from here, meaning Mount Sinai. Moses recognized the utter futility of the entire project if God were not to be dwelling among them. Indeed, Moses notes that it is this very presence, the dwelling of God among his people, that is the distinctive mark of Yahweh's people. He says in 33.16, after all, Isn't it your presence that makes us distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses functions as a mediator and intercessor. As a result, Yahweh declares in 34.14, I will go with you and I'm going to give you rest. The movement of the story at least relative to God and Israel, broadly speaking, can be thought of in progressive stages through the narrative. First, Yahweh delivered Israel from oppression and brought his people to the mountain. Second, God's glory descended on the mountain and he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. Next, the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Thus, the entirety of the Exodus event, story, narrative, moves through a series of stages between the Israelites filling Egypt at the very start of the book and God filling the dwelling, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, in the midst of his people at the end of the book. Therefore, it seems that the progressive proximity between Yahweh and his people is what forms the major plot of the book. The book of Exodus is not primarily about God delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Rather, the book 
seemingly is about the change in the proximal relationship between God and his people. So what is the book of Exodus really about? Look at the ending. Chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of Yahweh filled the Mishkan. The cloud of Yahweh was on the Mishkan by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of the entire house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The book of Exodus is not primarily about God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. Rather, the book of Exodus is about the progressive proximity between Yahweh and his people to the point that at the very end of the book, God is dwelling among his people. Indeed, we see here the dwelling place of God is with humanity. Well, we, we draw the English title for the book of Exodus from the Greek title in the Septuagint, Exodus, the going out. Therefore, today, as we end with a prayer, allow me to lead you in one that uses perhaps inundates us with that familiar English prefix, X. Let's pray. Lord, deep within our hearts, we, we do desire to grow as deep readers of your holy scriptures and the fact that the living God dwells among us. And so we ask, Lord, that you cultivate in us by the work of your Holy Spirit that you could use your Holy Scriptures. Use your Holy Scriptures, O Lord, to exhibit your majesty, to exalt yourself, to exhale the breath of your Holy Spirit into us, to excite us, to exceed our expectations, to exasperate our enemy, the devil, to examine our hearts, to exculpate our guilt, to execute the righteousness of Christ upon us, to exercise our cognitive and spiritual selves, to exert your reign in our lives, to exhibit your glory, to exhume those things of death within us, to exile impure thoughts from our mind, to exonerate us, to exercise the lure of this world from us, to expedite our maturing in Christ, to expel from us any hint of gossip, to exacerbate the lure of sin in our life, to expiate from us those sins that so easily entangle, to explain your ways to us, to export your very thoughts into our mind, to expose us to the reality of loving our neighbor, to express your unsearchable riches, to expunge from us those distractions that lure us away from your kingdom, 
to extend your grace to us and to extinguish any lies that reside in us and to extricate us from self-doubt, giving us victory in all things through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And now, a benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.